Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, the new verses start on 978. We'll do enough review, you'll be a little on 977 as well. I'm going to start off with what, what I found to be funny. You may not find it to be funny. But uh, in the bulletin, it says that we're going to finish through verse 16. <laughs> I kind of went back and saw that we've been eight weeks in Ephesians chapter 4, and we've done 12 verses in eight weeks. And on Tuesday, I was pretty convinced I was going to do four verses today. But by Thursday morning, I realized, no, I'm not. And I wrote out what I you know, intend to say this morning, and so it was after I finished all my work last, yesterday, then I asked Chat GPT, not just to, to give me an outline, I said, give me a sermon on Ephesians 4, 13 and 14, and it did it in one page. So if I'm done in like five or ten minutes, you know I'm using the JPT version of the sermon. So it does great at outlines, it's really brief in sermons, which you know, maybe somebody's cup of tea, like, you know, give it to me short and sweet. Uh, That's what chat GPT would do for a sermon. So what it looks like by way of a kind of an outline where we're at in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians is broken up into two halves. Uh, The first three chapters are very doctrinal. The first three chapters are all about what God has done, not about what you're supposed to do. It only tells you to do one thing in three chapters, and that's to remember what God has done. So, actually, when Terry and I were in school together, uh, the director of the program, uh, Bob Montz, would say, when he taught a class, he would say, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to teach you, I'm going to teach it to you, and I'm going to tell you what I taught you. So, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he tells us, like, here's, here's what God has done, and I'm going to review what God has done, and don't forget what God has done. And then beginning in chapters 4 to 6, he begins applying all that God has done, all that God has invested into those who are saved by his grace. And this doesn't cover all of chapters 4 to 6 because it would have been too complicated for the screen. But in chapter 4, the first 16 verses are about unity, and then it transitions into purity, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 17, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to get through verse 16 so that I could kind of close out that sub-chapter, that segment on unity, because next week uh, Jordan will be teaching or preaching, however he wants to look at that. He'll be here next week, and I thought if I could kind of wrap it up through verse 16, that would set the stage for picking up with this concept of, of what does purity look like among God's people. I could pick that up in two weeks but it's not going to happen. So, here are some key verses to build context. I won't spend long on this. In verses 4 to 6 of chapter 4, it reads like this. This is the unity part. This is the heart of unity. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all and in all. Now, we spent at least one week on that, probably just one. Uh, So you can always go back if you want to pick out some particulars. What does that mean? What does that look like? What is Paul saying? But that's unity. Then the very next verse, verse 7, highlights diversity, which actually is... uh, it. 
encourages and fosters unity. So verse 7, you've got all that oneness, then verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That is, every person who is a Christian has been gifted by Christ with a gift or gifts that are meant to promote the unity and building up of the body of Christ. He starts with these gifts in Ephesians. Other gifts are mentioned other places. But in Ephesians, it's he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or pastors and teachers. All of those gifts are speaking gifts. They're teaching gifts. So this giftedness starts with these gifted teachers that, that invest themselves in everybody else to equip them and to bring out their gifts which build up the body, which is essentially what verse 12 says. These gifts equip the saints for the work of ministry. And when the saints are equipped and the saints are doing the work of ministry, all of that together results in building up the body of Christ. Verse 12 is where we were last week, so that's where we spent a lot of time. Where we're going to be this week is developing this concept of building up the body of Christ. What does it look like to have the body of Christ built up? So, start with that, beginning in verse 12, if I had the next four words, until we all attain. Everybody here is a child. Uh, you're somebody's child by the virtue of the fact that you've been born. If you're an adult, hopefully you've moved on from what would be called your childhood. But you either were a child or you're a child right now. And so it's not exclusive of children, but oftentimes children kind of have this idea when you say, how long do I have to wait? Well, until, and, and there's this eagerness... Or there's this anticipation, or maybe it's angst and apprehension, because something has been promised, something is a goal, something's still in the future, and, and you can't have it fully, or maybe at all, until. And so a child wants to know, well, how long until we get there? How long until my birthday? How long until Christmas? How long until some event? It's this idea of until. So until is a very interesting word. I'm going to give you two examples of it besides what we find here. There's a parable taught in Matthew chapter 13. A parable of the good seed, the wheat, and the tares. And so Jesus tells a parable that a, a man went out to sow good seed in his field. And he did that. And while he was sleeping, an enemy came in and sowed tares or weeds. And the servants got up and they saw that there was both wheat and weeds, wheat and tares in the field. And they said, well, master, do you want us to separate the two? And this is the master's response. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there's a certain apprehension in that in that parable where you've got tares, weeds, growing in amongst the good wheat, and I think we need to solve this problem. And Jesus says in the parable, not until the end of the age. Not yet. And so there's, there's this apprehension. There's an eagerness to do the separation. 
There's an eagerness to keep the wheat pure, but Jesus says, not until the harvest. It's too soon. A second example is regarding Jesus himself in Philippians, famous verses. Christ Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by, become obe by becoming obedient to the point of death. That too really would be better translated as the preposition until in the Greek. So he humbled himself by becoming obedient until the point of death, even death on a cross. But there was an until. There was an ending point. Jesus isn't still humbled. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. Uh, all authority has been given him. Authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He's no longer humbled. But there was an until. He had to wait. There was a waiting period. So now, back in Ephesians chapter 4, Christ has gifted the church with certain individuals to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain. What is it that we are meant to attain is described then in verses, the rest of verse 13 through verse 16. I'm going to give it to you all at once. Just as a big mouthful, this is where we will be for two Sundays, this Sunday and the next time I'm here. It reads like this. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes... Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, there's enough there to know this isn't going to happen at the end of this service. We're going to acquire all that. We're going to experience all that. We're going to say we've arrived at the until. The only church that stops growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is either a church that is perfect or a church that stopped listening. Because it's one or the other. Until that, there is this until still looming that we are pressing in toward and moving toward. So let's... Um, Let's break it down this way. Paul says we all attain that. And the emphasis here is Paul is not saying until each of you attains that. Though I'm not going to tell you that the Bible never talks about your own development in personal godliness and holiness. It does. All right? There's a sense in which I am responsible for me. And you're responsible for you. But... In Ephesians, the emphasis isn't on your individual responsibility. It's on we will never attain what he just said by ourselves. It's a group project, which is what I mentioned last week. I think it was in my prayer. You know, what Paul is talking about in Ephesians, this unity is a group project. As much as you probably did not have good experiences in school with group projects. Because somebody always seems like they're slacking. But that's what this is. This is a together project. 
The Interpreter's Bible from 1953 puts it this way. Our verses, furthermore, envision Christian maturity in a social sense. The plural we is important. The writer thinks of maturity as a mark of unity in the church. What we are and what we are meant to become, we become together in Ephesians chapter 4. And there's no shortcuts. So let's break it down. What do we attain? This is still going to be a big picture. This is looking at really now just the next two verses where we're going to kind of see the big picture. We'll fly over and then we'll go back and, and zoom in on each particular. But still, I just want you to see how the moving parts, how they fit together. What is it that the church, our church, is meant to attain? Well, we attain three things. Unity, maturity, and fullness. Now, technically, the word mature is an adjective, and I probably should highlight manhood, but I didn't want to eliminate, because it's not really talking about only men. It's talking about a mature individual, a mature adult. So I picked out the word maturity, or mature, instead of the word, word manhood. But you get the idea. They're complementary terms. We are meant to attain three things. Unity, maturity, and fullness. Now that unity is described two ways. I just want you to see how the verses break down. Those are the three things we are to attain. The unity breaks down two ways. It's unity of the faith, that's one, and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. But both those are descriptors of the unity. What kind of unity are we talking about? Unity of the faith. Unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So those three things. We're to attain those three things so that we may no longer be something. And there's two things we are no longer to be in this particular text. The first thing we are no longer to be is children. We'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. That's the counterpart to this maturity. I want you to grow up. I don't want you to stay a child. Maybe it occurs to you, you can remember that the person that uh, wrote or preached uh, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, you remember that person said, I wish I could talk to you more about Melchizedek, but you're babes. You know, you're not, you're not accustomed to solid food. Uh, it's hard for you to grasp this. So I'm going to have to treat you like you're still a child, even though I think we should be moving on from that. By the way, maybe I'll, I'll throw in, one of the reasons why I go so slow is because I'm fascinated by the particulars of things. But honestly, I go to two different pastors groups, and I'm in a couple pastors groups in Facebook, one of which is really large. And so you see discussions, and I have discussions, and, and, and there's value for kind of doing things fast. I'm not going to say is without value. There's also value in going slow. But what I have found talking with other pastors is for, in a lot of places, they're taught the same things their whole life, and they never get deeper than that. Um... Just the same things. And at some point, it just seems like, it seems unfortunate if you've been a Christian a very long time and all you ever do is these Bible surveys where you never go deeper than, than what the text, I think, encourages you to go. So that's one of the reasons why I try to spend more time and 
digging a little deeper so that you see things that you didn't see before. The books I like to read best are not books that I agree with. Uh, they're not necessarily books I disagree with, but ideally the books I like to read best are books that make me think thoughts I'd never thought before. Like I had never looked at it that way, or I'd never heard somebody present it that way, or, and, and maybe I disagree with it, or maybe I, I move into it and I think that's exactly right and I never thought about it. But those are the books I like best. So that's, that was free. So we're to attain unity, maturity, and fullness so that we're no longer children and so that we may no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So don't be children and... Don't be tossed to and fro. And I've got doctrine in a different color font because then that word doctrine is explained two ways. That doctrine he's talking about is doctrine by human cunning and doctrine by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's kind of the flyover of verses 13 and 14, and there's certain implications. What this means, because this, whatever it is what that we are to attain, we attain it together and not apart. What it means is, I will never arrive at the knowledge of the Son of God on my own. It requires the church. I will never reach mature manhood on my own. It requires the church. I will never attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in my own private devotions. It requires the church. I will never stop being a child apart from the church. I will never stop being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine apart from the church. I will always be susceptible to human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes except for the church. It brings me back. That's how all this fits together. Now, that's, that's the flyover again. Now let's break it down. Oh, I forgot about this question. Why didn't God design the attainment of sanctification or maturity solely on an individual basis? Now, sanctification is a good biblical word, but the Good News Club kids know all about sanctification. What is sanctification? Huh? Sanctification is God making me holy in heart and behavior, right? That's what we sing in Good News Club. Once in a while, we haven't sung it a lot this year. But sanctification is God making me holy in heart and behavior. Not just behavior. That's conforming to a standard, but it hasn't changed your heart. Sanctification is God changing my heart, and it changes my behavior. That's sanctification. Why didn't God say, I want you, I want you to attain... This fullness of Christ. I want you to attain maturity all on your own. You became a Christian. We're going to give you a Bible. We might give you a couple of books besides the Bible to help you, and you're on your own. Why does it require the church? Why is it that this is impossible for any one of us to attain on our own? And the answer is pretty simple, really, right? Because if, if this sanctification, if this maturity could be gained on an individual says, can you imagine how insufferable that person would be? How arrogant? We'd be measuring ourselves by ourselves. I would look at whatever I think my strength is and compare it to somebody else who I think doesn't share the same strength, and I would think, oh, I am, I'm full of it. And it would be true. 
It's just not what I think I'm full of. Um, we would be insufferable. So what we are meant to attain as a church is not individual, it's collective, so that it promotes unity as opposed to disunity. So it doesn't prom- This, what God has prescribed, keeps us from from competition, an unhealthy competition amongst ourselves where we are measuring our own righteousness by ourselves. My maturity requires your maturity. It requires your giftedness and vice versa. That's how it all fits together and it makes perfect sense to me. The Interpreter's Bible puts it this way. Individualism and egotism are destroyers of unity. They are signs of childishness. As pure individualists, we cannot become the body of Christ and grow into the fullness of Christ. You'll never be the fullness of Christ on your own. I will never be the fullness of Christ on my own. Nothing matures us as Christians so effectively as full sharing in the common life of the Christian fellowship. My experience has been, and this happens more online than it does in person, I'm in a couple uh, groups online. Uh, one is a MeWe group. That's it's a it's a it's a very Christian-based group. And sometimes people come in with some pretty bizarre ideas. Uh, and usually, if there's very bizarre and people are interacting, I'll usually some point along the line I'll probe like, well, where do you where do you gather with the church? And as often as not, they don't. My experience has been. When Christians aren't gathering with the church, uh, it does not lead to good places. That's not surprising. I think that fits with what Paul talks about in Ephesians. Uh, We need the church to correct each other, to build one another up, so that I have the benefit of gifts that are not my own, and I think, you know, I need to work on that. You know, and I, one of my stories would be when I was at the Free Methodist Church, you know, 35... 35 plus years ago in Lincoln, Illinois. I mean, they had a different set of gifts than the kind of tradition I came out of. And what they were particularly good at was praying. Uh, They were some of the most marvelous people that prayed, and their prayer services were so meaningful. And it inspired me to think, "I I need to move into that because they're strong there and I'm not. So... So positively, here's what we're to attain. Number one, we're to attain unity. Earlier in chapter 4, he said we're to maintain unity. Maintain it. Now he says we need to attain it. Both are true. The Bible often teaches this, this balance between what we already have and what is not yet ours in its completed state. So we have unity in Christ. There is only one Savior. There is only one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have it, but we also are to attain it. So both are true, this idea of unity. Unity is a concept that my entire life people have been calling for unity. I have a pastor friend who uh, touches base with me every once in a while, and, and oftentimes when he's touching base, he's trying to get me more involved with with some movement of unity that he values within the church. And I'm always a little standoffish, and, and I don't know why he would think that's exactly true, but I'm, I'm trying to respect you know, his own convictions and where he wants to be, and 
but I'm not completely comfortable with that. At least I'm not sure, and I'm more hesitant. I'm, I'm holding back a little bit. But there's always been calls for unity. Unfortunately, unity is often built on the lowest common denominator. Like, we can make it really low. We could say, not just do you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Let's say, do you believe the Bible is, is a good book? Contains what, some of what God says. I mean, other people have their holy books. We have our holy books. But do you believe the Bible is a, is a holy book of God? Yes. Then let's be unified. Or do you believe there's a God? Yes. Well, then let's be unified. Do you believe in love? Yes. Well, then let's hold hands and be unified. I mean, you could make it that simple. You know, I went to a Promise Keepers crusade, which, you know, some people have no idea what that was, or it was. Maybe it still is, I don't know. But back in the day, they filled entire, you know, ballparks or football stadiums with men. And, and it wasn't all bad. I went to one just because I wanted, I wanted to know firsthand, my firsthand experience of going to a Promise Keepers conference. I heard Chuck Swindoll. The only time I've heard him in my life, he was an excellent speaker. His message was good. But they were, they were not shy about saying, we're going to downplay doctrine. Because doctrine divides. But that is a doctrine. Their doctrine is that doctrine divides. That is a teaching. That was a value. It did affect what they thought. Paul says, we do need to attain unity. But he doesn't leave us in the dark as to what kind of unity he's talking about. He describes the unity we are to push into. He calls it unity of the faith. Unity of the faith. What he is not talking about is your personal faith. Well, I've got my faith. Here's what I believe. We've all got our personal set of beliefs. He's not talking about that kind of faith. What he's talking about is the faith. It's objective. It doesn't belong to you. It's what is out there and it's true. That's where unity starts. That's where it is derived from. The last book of the Bible right before the book of Revelation is Jude. And Jude puts it this way. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the faith Paul's talking about. That's the faith that, if you want to encapsulate it in the Apostles' Creed, or the Nicene Creed, you know, that faith, those irreducible set of cardinal primary doctrines that you cannot compromise on or you've lost Christianity. That's where unity starts. Not just do you believe the Bible's a good book or there is a God. It goes deeper than that. It goes back to part of what we talked about when we were in verses 4 to 6. So, Attain unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. You've got to believe certain specific things about who Christ is. And if you don't believe those things, there can be no unity. It's not just God. Franklin Graham, some good number of years ago now, I didn't read the book, but I have it. I like the concept. I think I heard an interview about it. He wrote a book called The Name. The Name. And his point was, it's easy to talk about God in these vague general terms, but the name that separates wheat from tares in a lot of cases is the name of Jesus Christ. 
Because there's salvation found in no other name given under heaven but the name of Jesus Christ. So if we're not talking about that name, if we're not talking about who he was, truly God and truly man, never ceasing to be one, then we really don't have any basis for unity. First John puts it this way. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Alright? That's just eliminated a, a whole lot of world religions. If you deny the Son, you have denied God Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. Because they're the same. Same God. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. Where is eternal life found? It's found in the Father and the Son. And we find out in other places in Scripture, it includes the work of the Holy Spirit that applies it to sinners' hearts. But that's where salvation is found, in no other. So we not only attain to the unity of the, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, but also this unity of maturity. The Interpreter's Bible has an excellent commentary on what does it mean that we should strive for maturity. It looks like this. The illusion... That Christianity is a religion for children and not for grown men and women is disastrous. It is widespread. A few memories of Sunday school are not enough for the storms of later life. Ignorance of Bible and creed and Christian doctrine, blameworthy ignorance, one may add, exposes thousands of men and women to every wind of doctrine. Boil Christian doctrine down to a few ethical precepts and no great demand for study or understanding appears essential. But the mature Christian needs much more than this. Wow. That's from the Methodist Publishing House in 1953. Reduce Christianity to just these ethical principles of be kind, treat others well, love people. It gives you no incentive to ever dive into what God has actually revealed in depth beyond something that isn't defined by Scripture itself. That's maturity. You press into that maturity. And the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ here is interesting in that he's not saying we ought merely to be well catechized. It's not like we will grow into this, this maturity when we can recite all the articles of whatever catechism you choose to follow. Uh, we can recite it by memory. We know all the answers to the catechismic questions. It's not just knowing things where we all become these delightful academics that think we know more than any other people. Rather, we become more like Christ. We're full of Christ. And one way that's expressed is in Luke's Gospel, a little verse that says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We collectively ought to press into and become more like the fullness of Christ in that we are loving God better 
and more, and we are loving our neighbor better and more in similar ways to the way Christ demonstrated his love for his father and his love for people around him. It didn't mean you shied away from the truth. It didn't mean you didn't address things that need, didn't need addressing, but you became more like Christ in exercising the type of wisdom that was required given the situation. All right, negatively, here's what we're to avoid. Negatively, so that we may no longer be children. Uh, the Bible prizes a childlike faith, a childlike uh, trust in something greater than him or herself. So that kind of childlikeness is good, but childishness is not good. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Corinthians. Brothers, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. So in regard to evil, be naive. Steer far clear of that which is tempting and evil. But in regard to growing up and thinking, be grown up. Don't be satisfied with just a Sunday school lesson that you might have learned back when you were in Barb's class. That's appropriate for that age group. It's not appropriate for adults. We need to move beyond that. Build on that. Secondly, we are no longer to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Obviously, the metaphors change from being a child to being a ship tossed at sea, like a, a ship without a rudder. It doesn't mean the sails aren't up. It doesn't mean the wind's not blowing and that ship's going places. It is going places. But where it happens to be going is not really, there's no real direction to it. It's going this direction one time, going that direction another time. Uh, there's, no, there's no real purpose in it all. It's pretty clear that we're a culture driven by fads. In the secular world, that makes sense because they always want to sell you something. They want you not to be satisfied with last year's shoes or last year's clothes. They want you to be uh, caught up with the latest trend because if you're satisfied with your clothes that you bought last year or five years ago or whatever it is, then you won't be spending more money on the new stuff. And so they always want you to be dissatisfied, so you're always spending more money. It's sadly not a lot different in the Christian community where Christians are driven by fads, books that become these very popular bestsellers that everybody has to have, and they seem so life-transforming, until the next book. When the one book that really doesn't change is the Bible. It's the one book that you can build your foundation on. It's the one book that tells you the value, the relative value, of all the other books, of all the other movements, of all the other personalities, of all the other trends. But we tend to be driven by these next big things ahead. Paul calls it human cunning. And the reason why I have dice up there, because that word cunning comes, it's also related to the word cube in Greek. And it referred to a dice that that certain hucksters would toss because they had more than one set of dice and they could toss these dice in such a way where they're going to win the bets. Uh, we would call them, I think, in our culture, growing up people would talk about weighted dice, dice that were weighted on certain sides so that they could uh, increase the outcome of certain numbers coming up more often than they ordinarily would. And so this this 
wind of doctrine that we're to avoid is being concocted by human cunning. It comes up, in their minds, it becomes this very big deal, this defining moment when really it's not that. The second thing, he calls it by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And it's the guy that's like, oh, I've, I've got the answer. I know what nobody else knows. I can tell you secrets that everyone else has missed. Because it's, it's got to be unique to them, otherwise you don't need them. So you've got to go to them to get the answers you're looking for that can't be found anywhere else. Paul calls all that wind of doctrine derived from human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. What are the safeguards to this? The first two are very obvious. The first is scripture. The second is the church. Church is a safeguard from being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. A safeguard. It's not foolproof. It's a safeguard. The Bible is a safeguard from being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But the last safeguard, which I think we probably don't talk enough about, would be the, the safeguard of church tradition. So a book uh, that Terry and I did in school together, uh, we had to read a book called The Pocket History of the Church. It's just a tiny little book. This is Pocket History of the Church. But there were, it was, because it was so condensed, it was right up my alley. Uh, it was an easy read, and he made some terrific points in the pocket history of the church. I'm going to give you a paragraph, maybe a paragraph and a half, on church tradition and its role in church history. It's phenomenal. It goes like this. In the early and medieval church, three sources had formed the foundation for what people knew to be true. Revelation, that is the Bible. Tradition, that is long-standing doctrines established out of interpretation of Scripture. And reason, that is the use of the human mind or careful logical thinking. Revelation and tradition had run side by side because tradition guarded against misinterpretations of the Bible. Tradition, for instance, helped oppose the view of the Arians that Christ was created. He wasn't fully God, wasn't always God, he was created. Tradition helped fight against that. But tradition was never to replace or supplant revelation. In other words, you always start with the Bible, that's primary. And reason was always subject to, controlled by, and limited by revelation and tradition. So, I don't care what you think, if it goes against what Scripture says, and it goes against long-standing, established church tradition, chances are, I'm wrong. God hasn't waited 2,000 years to enlighten the church with what is now really the secret to it all. It goes on to say, in the Reformation, however, a change occurred. Because of what Roman Catholicism was teaching about the church and salvation, the Reformers questioned and in part rejected the benefits of tradition. But they did not reject all tradition. They continued to affirm the traditional doctrines of the Trinity and of Christ formulated at the councils of Nicaea, Constantinople, Chalcedon, 
but they did lose confidence in the accuracy of tradition. And so they began a movement that led to a practical rejection of tradition. In other words, the reformers loved the tradition that was established by these universal or worldwide councils of the church, but they were rejecting the tradition of, that came from Rome that was saying what you had to believe about the Bible itself. So the Bible then beca- so the Roman Catholic Church would say, what makes the Bible the Bible? What makes it the inspired word of God? The church does. The church gives authority to Scripture. No, it doesn't. You start with Scripture. Church tradition is valuable in that it reflects what Bible, the Bible says. So the Bible's always primary. The Roman Catholic Church had messed that up. And so the, the reformers, in rejecting Roman Catholicism, were highly suspect of anything that became tradition. And it looks like this. Last page. Christians, some argued, weren't really helped much by tradition. Left alone with the Bible, one's mind in the Holy Spirit, a Christian could inevitably arrive at the correct interpretation. This wasn't what the Reformers had taught, but this is what became popular. The Reformers had maintained a healthy respect for tradition, but they wanted tradition to be submissive to Scripture. Unfortunately... A moderate position was taken to extreme, and tradition lost the day to revelation and reason, that is, the Bible interpreted by one's own mind without any doctrinal guidelines. It's just me and Jesus calling me. I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to think about it, I'm going to pray about it, and I'm going to get this special insight from God as to what the text really means. Tradition be damned. And that's not what the Reformers taught, and I don't think it's a good place to be. I do want to reflect on Scripture. I do want to meditate on Scripture. I want to meditate on Scripture, and I want the benefit of tradition guiding me away from being tossed to and fro by errors of doctrine and moving into what is true and right apostolic doctrine. And with that, we're at a place for comments and questions. Rick. Our American culture has individualized Christianity to a fault. Uh, To a fault. We do have individual walks. We are saved one by one at the foot of the cross. There's, There's elements of truth in that. But a person is never saved in isolation. They're saved to be brought into a community of believers whereby you grow and mature. Yeah. And oftentimes the Bible talks about more often than you would imagine. It's not, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. In the Bible, when Jesus says that, it's a plural. You, you are the light of the world. Now, if you want to take it by application, some some extended application and say, well, aren't I to be my own little light in my own little workplace? Yeah, that's, that's true. But that wasn't what Jesus primarily went, meant. He meant you, the community, the people of God are the light of the world together. And you can't be that well on your own. You need the other people of God to be that light, to be that city set on a hill. It takes all of you together because no one of us has all the gifts of God, all the gifts of Christ. We are what we are together. Somebody else? Rod. 
interpretation of scriptures, not as opposed to cultural norms and so forth. Because there were a lot of mistakes. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, tradition is responsible for adding on lots of layers that the Bible does not require. So in those senses, they can be, they can be neutral, but when they become, no, that it has to be this way, then you've got a problem. Then it becomes a, an obstacle to growth and maturity. So yes, to answer your question, tradition really in the sense that this... Uh, well, previously, the book, the way it's quoting it, is in what the church has established as right and true doctrine. Orthodoxy. Straight doctrine. Uh, and, and it doesn't make any difference what culture you come from. It doesn't make any difference whether you grew up in an Eastern culture where there were many gods, or whether you grew up in an atheistic culture where there was no gods. There were certain things you believed that this is what the Bible taught as you could say, is expressed in, in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and they're non-negotiables. But church tradition, so that every generation isn't having to hammer out, well, who exactly is Christ? You know, uh, What does it mean that he's truly God and truly man? Was it both at the same time? You know, What does it mean that he was, he was uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among... I mean, all those things have been hammered out through church history, and we have the benefit of that. I often pray to God, and thank him. I literally, I do have this sense of I, I stand on the shoulder of giants. I can't believe how, how blessed I am to have so many men of God, men and women and cultures that have benefited me with their insight and understanding of scripture. Uh, not, the, not the secondary matters, the essential matters. The things that matter most. Somebody else, uh, Lori and then uh, Vicki. Well, I mean, tradition is a word that Paul doesn't use. I'm throwing it in the text. So, in other words, you've got what you've got are people teaching doctrines that are derived by their own cunningness, their own craftiness, their own deceitfulness, and it's tradition that will help keep you from that. Not necessarily Jewish. It's mostly a Gentile church for sure. Um, people that are, I mean, I don't know, because I don't know exactly what the false doctrine was that they dealt with. I mean, it moves into, I don't think it would have been around in Ephesus. I think it came a little bit later, some decades later. But Gnosticism, which taught there was this secret knowledge, you know, that the enlightened had. And if you were one of the enlightened ones, you would know things that the ordinary guy that believes in whatever, you know, they don't have that, but you will have that. That that was crafty, that was deceitful, it was cunning, it wasn't true. You didn't need secret knowledge. We have all that we need in Scripture and Christ. You don't need a special person to enlighten and show you things that nobody else knows. You've got Scripture, you've got tradition, they will guide, that will lead you in to good places. That will lead you into pastures where you can be fed well. So there are there's many false teachers around as there well there's a lot I don't I don't know what the comparison would be there's always somebody peddling something there's always somebody peddling something Vicky I, I just, you know, that one yeah. come on Vicky that's okay uh, Cindy so is kind of right 
It's very interesting. If you look at the way the church, the universal church, the, the essential church, I don't know. If you look at how they, they codify doctrine, like what is true about doctrine? They would start with some of the, uh, the earliest things they started with. Well, the Nicene Creed is primarily dealing with Christ. Okay, they're deciding what is true about God? What is true about Christ? Who is he? What did he do? How was he born? How did he die? How did he rise again? All that was established in the first several centuries. Then it moves into things eventually, especially during the Reformation, like the doctrine of salvation. They're not, read, they're not having to scrutinize who was Christ, who is God. They're scrutinizing what is salvation? What does it mean to be justified? That's really important. But unless you've laid the groundwork as to who Christ is, don't be dealing with how do you get saved. Because you better know who Christ is, and you'll know how to get saved. And then, in my lifetime, you know, back in the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, we aren't, we aren't scrutinizing the doctrine of salvation, or the doctrine of uh, uh, who is Christ, who is God, what is Scripture. We're scrutinizing when exactly is Christ coming back again? Not nearly as important as the doctrine of salvation. Now, it's important because it's in Scripture. But all that, we have the benefit of tradition, which has really laid the groundwork, mapped it out. This is what is true. You're saved by faith and faith alone. But faith that saves is not alone. You have been appointed for good works, but your justification is by faith and faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But in the 1970s and 80s, having had the benefit of all that, we're debating and arguing over the timing of the rapture. The timing of the rapture. Now, that's kind of fallen on deaf ears because uh, it's been so many years since Israel became a nation and people were so sure Christ would come back before 1988 because a generation is 40 years. 40 years plus 1948 is 1988. There was a book, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Come Back by 1988. And some of you are like, I wasn't even born in 1988. <laughs> he is coming back, and there are essentials to believe, but the particulars were off. Somebody else? 